name to Rebecca and Holly, and we are the directors of a new society called Young Musicians for Social Justice. Young Musicians for Social Justice seeks to bring together and empower young musicians to recognise their potential as agents of social change. And this podcast asks the question, what is the role of music in bringing about social justice? Over the next 10 weeks, we are going to be hearing from a number of different speakers, all with unique perspectives on this question. We are both students at the University of Leeds. We met over coffee at Hyde Park Book Club here in Leeds, which if you're a student, you must go to. And we bonded over our mutual interest in music and social change. We really hope you enjoy listening to our conversations as much as we did. So today we are joined by Clark Randolph. Clark is a graduate from the Royal College of Music and Howard University and is a researcher, violinist and educator with teaching experience on primary and secondary levels. She currently teaches Black American Music History at Emerson Preparatory School in Washington, D.C. Additionally, she teaches violin privately and serves as a violinist in the Randolph String Quartet. Recent research by Ms. Randolph includes Tintinabulation in Arvo Parts, Pasagiga, and Still We Rise, Racial Discrimination and Black American Musicians. Her primary research interests involve documenting the experiences of Black American musicians from ethnomusicological, psychological, sociological and performance science perspectives. Thanks so much for joining us, Clark. No problem. Happy to be here. Great. Well, so before we begin, um, I'd just like to mention that I first heard you speak on your paper at the Sempre conference, which was held at the University of Leeds this Mm -hmm. September. Um, And yeah, I really enjoyed your paper and I just really wanted to have the opportunity to chat to you and and find out more. But yeah, before we dive into your research topic, we would like to know uh, what music have you been listening to during lockdown? Um, I actually have a very diverse taste in music. Like I literally listen to everything. <laughs> same, same to be honest. <laughs> um, but I feel like a few months into the lockdown, um, I think we all realized that this pandemic was way more serious than we realized. Um, mm. So that definitely caused me to switch up my playlist um, and kind of think about um, and listen to music that is a bit more mindful in terms of what I was letting into my soul. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I feel like so many people are suffering from like negative emotions and mental health issues. Um, mm-hmm. And on this different side of the same token, um, a lot of people don't realize that what you consume through your senses directly impacts your output as a human being. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been listening to a lot of gospel and Christian contemporary music. Um, just so I can feed my soul what I believe I need to, you know, stay sane during this time. Um, yeah. I know uh, I've been listening to Creflo Dollar's album, Sermon Songs, Volume 4, um, as well as artists including Richard Smallwood and William McDowell. So, yeah. Sounds great. So, as I briefly mentioned in your introduction, you completed your undergraduate in 2015. And mm-hmm. then you began your master's study in 2018, and that was in performance science at the Royal College of Music. And um, so can you tell us a bit about what may- motivated you to take this step from bachelor's to master's? And in particular, what motivated you to take this course? Um, you know, I had no intention of getting a master's degree, first of all. <laughs> um, and also, to be completely honest, I knew nothing about the course at the Royal College. Um, I took two to three years off because I just 
in terms of what I wanted, I felt like there wasn't a place for that. Mm-hmm. Um, deep inside, I knew what I wanted to do and what brought me joy, but I couldn't vocalize it in a way that people could grasp and that was actually available to me tangibly mm-hmm. um, at any college or university. So I sort of just went with the flow in my years off, um, built my violin studio and began teaching. Um, I applied to another college in the United States in 2017, thinking it was kind of what I wanted, um, but it wasn't. Um, And then later on in 2017, the chair of the music department at Howard University um, shared an email with me he received from the Royal College um, talking about their performance science program and it seemed exactly what I wanted. Um, I think the major thing for me was freedom in researching what I wanted. Um, When I applied to the other college, they kind of had a lot of comments about my writing sample that were basically saying you should be writing or researching something else. Like, do you have anything else that you've written about during your time that you could give to us because this, you know, and I don't want that. Like, I want to be able to be authentic to myself. So I submitted the same exact writing samples, my application. Um, and just at that point, it was if I get in, I get in. If I don't, I don't. They accepted me. So I knew it was a place where I would be able to be authentic to what I wanted to research. Yeah, I think that's such a key part of the process, actually, that I forget about is remembering why am I doing this and actually getting to that point in your decision making where you say, OK, even if this is turned down I've got to make sure that I'm doing it for my own reasons yeah Mm. great so um, I mentioned previously that um, I heard you speak at the Sempre conference and you presented your paper on racial discrimination and black American musicians Mm -hmm. and so in the early stages of your research how did you come to decide on this as your research topic um when I first got to Royal College I literally I had no idea what I wanted to research um and it kind of gave me a little anxiety because I feel like a lot of people came in there knowing like, oh, this is what I'm, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. I just knew that I wanted to do something that was black because that that's my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think after a few months of experiencing London, that research, like things started to be chipped away. And then I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, for one, the number of black students at Royal College was practically non-existent. I was not mistreated in any way, but I feel like you definitely notice your differences when you're in that environment. Um, I also notice the differences between the experience of Black British and then Black American people. Um, And then like how Black Americans were viewed on a more international perspective. Um, And I didn't really like that. (laughs) Like I didn't like the stereotypes. Um, So I felt like I wanted to do a research project that kind of dug deeper into what people view as stereotypes, just so people could get a clearer understanding. So I could practically teach people through my research. That's great. And so in that process of analyzing and challenging stereotypes, um, you obviously came across this connection between music and resilience. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you speak about this in a bit more detail? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess the, the relationship is very strong. Um, I feel like between, especially in the Black community, music and resistance are practically inseparable. But I felt like this is something I already knew because of my experience. So when I decided on my research, it was more so 
I've made this conclusion based on my experience. So I knew what the results of the research would be and what the conclusion was gonna be. It was, a, I guess, the fact of working backwards, creating the question based on my conclusion and then filling in like the technical gaps. Yeah. I really like the, the thing you said earlier as well about teaching your research was almost a way of teaching other people about those stereotypes that you found to be problematic. And I mean, I just haven't in the field of, I'm sort of in the field of music psychology research, I guess, mm -hmm. as a student, you don't meet often people doing research on stuff they have lived experience of, which I think is just major research, like deeper in a way. And you would have been able to get more into it than perhaps someone who hadn't had that lived experience. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of, you know, I, this past year was the first time that I've ever presented anything in a conference or anything. So like experiencing other people's papers as well, it just seemed very like everything was overly academic. There were a lot of like, and this is not like a criticism thing, but there were a lot of papers on these like tiny, like esoteric <laughs> topics that like in the grand scheme of life and all the problems that we have, it's just like, well, what difference could this actually make? Like the research mm. is great in and of itself, but what is it for? And mm. I think we have to remember that research is to make the world a better place. It's not for degrees. It's not for any of this. So yeah. I think in remembering that the whole world of research can just become way better. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've definitely felt that myself sort of feeling quite frustrated when I'm reading some research, feeling like, I just feel like it needs to be more personal in a way. And I really like that you're advocating for that. Can you um, as well elaborate a bit more about how you, you conducted your research? So um, during the, your paper, you spoke about the different people that you worked with and the different case studies um, that you established. Um, what, did you, what were your findings from those um, case studies? And can you share a bit about the individuals that you met? Mm -hmm. So... Um... I made sure to have a wide range of ages. I think that was very important because the situation of Black America changes throughout time. Like we've gone from slavery to now this. So I made sure to have, of course, like people from slavery times are not still alive. So I tried to get the oldest possible representative. So I got someone who was around during um, civil rights era and things like that. And then some more modern takes. Um, I think one thing I definitely learned was just the connection. Like all of the genres of black music have been so different from slave times until now. Um, there's that thread of similarity between all of them. And that is the resistance. The music was, has always been used as a force and for resilience. Um, mm. So yeah, that's one of the main things that I learned. So we're aware that um, the issue of race and representation in music is a huge issue and, and one that we're not going to possibly be able to cover between us in detail. Um, but I was wondering if you would be prepared to offer any insights into your own experience of how being black has affected your identity as a musician. Mm -hmm. um, I think personally, I can only speak from being a black classical musician, which is mm. just completely different than just being, you know, just a black musician. Um, yeah. It's kind of the dynamic of 
I know who I am, but they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, everyone has their perceptions of just what a basic classical musician is like, what they listen to, their character, how they speak, everything. Um, and I feel like these perceptions are all directly correlated to white culture. So I feel like even presenting myself as a black classical musician, a lot of people get confused and they're like, well, how, how does that work? Like, how can you, how can you be both? Um, like people believe, oh, well, you can't play Bach and Mozart in the same day and then get in the car and listen to your favorite hip hop artist. Like that just is something that's just not coexistent. Like people think that you can't appreciate the same thing. But for me, for one, music is universal. So I can express my experience through, you know, Bach and through Mozart the same way that other people express their experience through hip hop. And I like to hear my people express themselves through their music forms. So I think that main thing is that it seems like the two are just complete opposites. So when it's in one person, it's like people don't know how to react. So for example, when I was at Royal College, there were just situations where some comments were made about hip hop while I was in the room, negative comments. And it's like, well, do you think that I'm one of these black people that because I play classical and because I'm at Royal College that I'm rejecting my culture and rejecting, mm-hmm. you know, what mm-hmm. my people do just because I'm here. Like you didn't even get to know me, didn't ask, but you're just assuming because I'm in this environment that I'm a certain type of black person, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Do you think there's something really powerful, therefore, about someone like you who has that sort of duality of experiences and cultures and about sort of getting several people with different cultures and different musical and tastes and experiences and ways of expressing themselves in a room together then? I think so. I think everyone definitely has to be open-minded. And I think there's, you know, people have unless you're presented in that environment, people will have these perceptions that they don't even know they have until Mm -hmm. like it's revealed to them that something like that exists completely opposite of what they actually believe. So, you know, as long as people are open-minded and can believe basically that anything is possible, you know. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear your perspectives on the stereotypes of black classical musicians because, I mean, I come from a classical background, I'm white, but um, yeah, it's just so, so few black classical musicians I've seen in the UK. And I think, I guess, what it sounds like from what you've said so far is it kind of intersects all the different stereotypes of black musicians in popular music or hip hop, and then how that links to your identity as a black classical musician, but it being sort of simultaneously reject, like people assume that you're rejecting that. I think it's just such an interesting... Yeah. And then also that you're researching sort of music science and music psychology as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings me on nicely to my next question, really, which is what you sort of touched on earlier. But Mm -hmm. um, just, I think, being in that unique experience yourself of having studied at the UK and the US and and you were talking about the differences that you've noticed. um, Can you elaborate on that a bit, um, specifically with regards to your research? So looking at the impact of music upon social justice um, and in the way in which that's personally affected you. Have you noticed a difference between the two countries and how they approach that topic? Um, 
I do think in the UK, it's more of like, they just don't have a knowledge. Um, and that's fine. You know, you don't have black Americans in your country. So it's not a part necessarily a part of your culture. Um, and then because so few black American students are in the colleges and universities, it just then because becomes a question of relevancy. So like, for example, an all black college is not gonna research how to cater to say someone from Australia when it's just not a common thing um, because it just, it just doesn't really happen much. I feel like here in the US where it's a part of our culture, mm -hmm. um, it's more of a thing, but because the culture is still denied so much, um, you kind of have to fight for it to be relevant, if that makes sense. I see that. Um, building on what you said earlier as well, it seems as though in the process of doing your research, you've noticed maybe certain power dynamics that are in place in the music industry. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, there's a role in your research or um, maybe wider than your research? How do you hope that will change? Um. See, I just feel like it just goes so deep because you can say things like, you know, black people should have their own orchestras. Black people should like, you know, do this and do that. But then it becomes an issue of funding. And the reason funding is an issue is because you have this systemic racism. So it's just mm -hmm. like this constant thing where it's just like, how, how can we get ahead? How can we support our own community how can we get these finances and things like that because that's how a lot of you know artists get into these you know record labels where they're just they're they're just being abused for their music mm -hmm. it's because you know whatever hip-hop is in so and then it just becomes a money thing just because black culture is so it's thought of something that people consume and i feel like it's so because now with like social media it's like we want things now we want things now so it's just like a constant output mm -hmm. and i feel like people don't take the time to kind of think about oh well what is the culture behind that or what is the reason behind what they made mm. so i just feel like the whole thing just becomes twisted in a way that yeah. definitely like more research in other areas could probably help but then again it has to be actually applied it's a lot of layers to it i feel like the stuff you were talking about with the sort of social media consumption and sort of black music being listened to without understanding behind it did that sort of come into your research about uh resilience quite a bit um so in the civil rights era there were a lot of a lot there was a lot of music um just to help push that movement forward um I feel like for the, you know, it was consumed and the artists got their money, but I feel like on the other hand, the purpose of that music wasn't for money. It was for, it's specifically for the resilience so that the whole movement could move forward. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't really heard any music now that's really for, resilience but then again i haven't heard all music so i don't know um so i feel like now it's very much of a consumption thing as compared to um 
you know, older, older times. Mm. I think it's just, there's such a fine line between the function that the music is supposed to have. And then you can't decide how people want to consume it. Mm. So if something has a nice beat and people are attracted to it and they want to dance to it, but its lyrics are extremely like political, social, whatever, you know, you can't tell those people, you can't get mad at the people for saying this music is not for you to enjoy like this, that, and third. So I, it's just such a fine line between the function and the, and how people consume it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, did you notice, did you like notice much of a difference between, cause you said you had like different age ranges. Did mm-hmm. you notice like quite a big difference between the elder participants and the younger participants in that kind of like way they consumed that music? Um, I think for the older participants, just because the racism when he was my age was more blatant. Like it was like, because you're black, you can't go here or because Mm. you're black, you can't sit on the bus and you can't sit in the front of the bus. Now it's like, we can sit wherever we want. But so it's more of a thing of, um, I guess being stopped by the police now, Mm. even though that was happening back then. Um, it was more ingrained in the everyday life of the older participants. So I think that's probably why more music back then had so much, was so concentrated with promoting resistance and resilience. Yeah. But do you, did, you, did you feel that people still used it for some form of resilience today, perhaps like a different one? Or was that not really found in your research? Um, yeah, because I believe that joy is a form of resilience. Like, you don't have to, with all this stuff happening, it's easy to be in a terrible mood. It's easy <laughs> to just tap out of everything. But just to have a song that has nothing to do with, you know, social justice or political views or anything, mm. and just, like, reminding you this you just stay strong, you know, think positive. Even if it doesn't even say anything like that, even if it just makes you dance or makes you happy, <laughs> like that's, I feel like that's a form of resilience because you're not behaving in a way that, you know, these opposing forces would expect you to behave with everything. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. And that, I think you've sort of answered my question, but I'm going to ask it again anyway, but mm-hmm. is, that, is that the impact that you hope your research will have? I think just the main goal of anything that I do in life is just I want it to be useful um like I said before like research can be very abstract in a way that you can't even apply it to real life Mm. Um, but for me the main question is like what is the purpose and what type of change is this going to bring about Mm -hmm. so for me I wanted members of my community to feel heard through my research Um, So many of the participants thanked me for giving them an opportunity to speak about their experience and put it in the context of like a dissertation where I would be presenting so that other people who know nothing about it could hear it. Um, And on a global scale, um, I would hope that my research brings awareness to the importance of diversity in research um, and that Black Americans and our music are worthy of being researched on a scholarly level. So like I said before, like how the consumption is a thing, 
when you're consuming so much, you don't even think about the purpose or the reasons behind it, which is where the research comes in. Yeah. So you say, oh, no, this music is only for us to dance to. Like, it's not a big deal. But that's, mm-hmm. not, that's not really what it is. Like, it came from something. Yeah. And I think a lot of people brush off a lot of aspects of Black culture as just consumption, when it's actually, there's a lot of gaps in all types of research across the board, not just music, just everything. Mm-hmm. Um, just because we're just, it's just looked at as a source of entertainment a lot of the time. I find it interesting because it's something that I hadn't actually maybe considered so upfront that you say a lot of the participants just thanked you for the opportunity to speak and have their voice heard in a scholarly context. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's something, do you think that's something music researchers should reflect on a lot more of who they're having conversations with when they're doing this kind of sort of music research? Yeah, I think it applies to all research as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important. So in terms of, um, just to sort of wrap up our conversation, um, what do you hope to see from younger generations um, who, are, I, mean, you're, I mean, you're still very young yourself, but what do you hope to see from, what do you hope to see from young musicians in this arena? Um, I think just authenticity in general. I feel like the older generations are responsible for providing the knowledge, but once the knowledge is there, just remind musicians, students of all types to just be authentic. Because I feel like if you feel it in your heart to do it, then do it. And it will just it will just take care of itself. So I feel like that's what happened with my research. It was something that was genuinely important to me. So I decided to do it and it worked out and it proved to be important. And I feel like if everyone just continues to do that, then the world will be so much better. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we literally had a conversation with one of our other guests like an hour ago and their main point as well was authenticity. So it's really great to hear that from so many people. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, we'd love to know, before we let you go, how listeners can support you and your research um, or anything that you care about in this uh, arena. Um, I think directly supporting my research, uh, not much, but like in terms of the topic, I think a great way to support, even if you don't think it's supporting, is just like making an effort to do your own research and just learn for yourself. Even sharing it with just your family and friends, um, just to learn something new and just, you know, gaining knowledge to make a difference in your community. It doesn't even have to be a huge thing. I feel like reading a book and sharing that is really, is making a difference in itself, even if you don't think it is. Well, we will we will link um, your research below in the um, in our little podcast summary. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you. So, uh, Rebecca, what did you think? What were your personal thoughts on chatting to Clark and her research? I think she had so many great things to offer, but I think the thing that stood out for me was 
early on in the conversation when she was talking about how stereotypes um, and her noticing and experience stereotypes um, informed her journey towards her research. As we chatted more, I think it became apparent that that was a major motivating factor in, in want, her wanting to do her research. And I think that was just a reminder for me how important it is to lift up those who have lived experience or whatever social justice issue is that we're talking about um, in order to essentially make way for potential both musically and in a more broad human sense. Yeah, she spoke about how it was a lot of her participants said that they were really grateful to have had the opportunity to sort of share their thoughts on black music and resilience in an academic circle mm. and yeah it's something that I feel um, is missing from sort of maybe musicology, sociology, like all of those as Clark said is that lifting up of researchers with lived experience and making it something that anyone could read without sort of overly complicating academic jargon mm-hmm. um, and how like important that is for research so I thought that was really really interesting. If you enjoyed listening to our conversation, please like, rate and subscribe to this podcast and be sure to give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at YOSJ UK. Have a great week and thank you for listening.